All right. Uh, hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to today, Friday, uh, December 18th, as we are getting started. Uh, and we are here for the Ascent uh, Live podcast, a live video conversation where we get to know the human behind some of uh, the top leaders in tech. My name is Andrew Tarvin. I will be your host and MC for today. And I'm particularly excited because we're going to be talking to Charlie O'Donnell, who is the founder and general partner at Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. Uh, but before we get into that, just a couple of quick announcements for those of you joining us today in Remo. Uh, this is the Remo platform. Uh, as we're going through, if you have questions, you are welcome to share those in the Q&A functionality over to the right, and we'll see those as we go through the interview. Uh, if you are uh, listening in the traditional sense of a normal podcast, well, there is no Q&A over to the right, but you can always shoot us an email or a message. And of course, don't forget to uh, like and subscribe or rate and subscribe the podcast on your favorite listening app. But I'm excited for today's conversation with uh, Charlie, who is the sole partner and founder at Brooklyn Bridge Ventures, because one fascinating work that the group does. So Brooklyn Bridge Ventures has has made over 70 investments since it was founded, making it one of the most active funds investing in pre-seed and C-rounds in the city. That's New York City. And uh, prior to Brooklyn Bridge Ventures, uh, Charlie was a principal at First Rounds Capital, and he was the first analyst hired at Union Square Ventures. So this is clearly someone who knows his stuff. He's been named to Business Insider's 100 Most Influential People in New York Tech many, many times, one of 12 people to have been named that way five or more times. Uh, but not only that, as a human, he competes in triathlons, he bikes to work, and he founded the Brooklyn Bridge Park Boathouse, which is a free kayaking program on the East River, uh, which is pretty sweet as well. So I'm really excited for our conversation today. So please join me in uh, welcoming to your screens or to your ears or to your eyes, uh, Charlie O'Donnell. Hey there, thanks for having me. Absolutely. How are you doing today, Charlie? Feeling good? Pretty good, even though uh, the biking to work has decreased a little bit in the last year, but uh, I, I, I still make time to go around in circles in the park. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask about that. Do you walk outside, ride around in circles a little bit, come back a little bit? That's pretty much it, yeah. I like it, right? Actually, I've, I've read some research that there's value in creating a commute kind of like that, even if you don't physically, just as a way to kind of physically separate work and life in, in some regard. And we'll chat a little bit about kind of how you're adapting to the current environment coming up. But before we do, we like to get to know the human behind the person. So we've got a, uh, we're going to start with a quick rapid fire round where you can basically just answer uh, with one word or two word responses. Are you ready to, to try the rapid fire? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Perfect. Uh, let's see. So starting first, are you a morning person or a night owl? Night-ish. Night-ish. Okay. I like the, like the had to think about it, but I like the, um, the intent behind that. Uh, Apple or Android? Apple. Okay. Introvert or extrovert? Extrovert. Uh, when you were a kid, what did you want to grow up to become? You know, I think the first thing I ever said was lawyer, but that was probably because of like TV lawyers and trial and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, growing up in New York, Wall Street looms large. So something to do with the stock market. But I don't think I had a really good idea what that meant until sort of late high school. 
Yeah, okay. All right. So lawyer slash maybe stock market. Uh, all right. Uh, from a kid and obviously influenced by our perceptions of that. A lot of times media of like, yeah, lawyer, like being a lawyer, trial law, like looks amazing. It's, you know, 12 angry men type as a focus, as opposed to, well, actually there's a lot of research that you're doing a lot of time in email and, and uh, meetings and things. Okay. Uh, current favorite hobby. Uh, ice hockey, actually. Um, uh, I'm, I'm an ice hockey goalie. Oh, okay. Very nice. And are you currently, is, is ice hockey, I mean, you're all wearing a kind of mask anyway, I guess. Is that something that you can play during the pandemic? Yeah. So luckily enough, there's an outdoor rink uh, not too far from my house. And so I, 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 I'm not playing indoors this year, but outdoor season just started. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well masked up. Okay. And is it, I've never, I, I played soccer growing up and was always terrified to play as goalie because I'm like, I don't want people intentionally like shooting things at me. Is it painful to get hit by a puck? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, you're, the amount of padding is, is almost comical. And uh, I, I think one of the reasons I like playing goalie is as I've learned in my professional career, like I'm a solo general partner. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I, I kind of like doing my own thing, right? Everybody else is sort of out there skating around, teamwork, all of this sort of stuff. And I'm in my little crease by myself. I'm very content there. I, you know, hope the guys in front of me do their job. But if not, I can, you know, sort of handle the situation on my own. So I'm a, wow. I'm a good individual contributor. Okay. I, I like that. I've never thought about that, uh, you know, the metaphor of hockey and, and being a goalie in that way, but it actually makes uh, a lot of sense. Uh, what is a TV series you're currently watching or recently finished, if any? Yeah, we're um, hurrying to finish rewatching The West Wing because Netflix is actually taking it off as of like Christmas. So we we only have a few days left to go, but we uh, you know, over the past sort of couple of years, I've, I've taken some comfort in watching, um, you know, presidential things on TV to imagine what, um, you know, actual professionals might look like. And mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's been nice to sort of pretend that, you know, Martin Sheen was actually uh, the president for a little while. Yeah. Um, but that's a, and it's a really, really terrific series and really, really great acting. Oh, it's it's incredibly well done, and yeah, can you can, can you imagine a better president than President Bartlett? I mean, maybe Dave from the movie President movie Dave. I'm a Dave fan, yeah, for yeah. sure, for sure. I remember that one. Uh, very cool. And who is a, a famous person who you admire? Uh, famous person that I admire. I, I'm not a big celebrity person, to be honest. Um, yeah, I'm gonna. I'll probably take a pass on that. I think I, more of my admiration comes in just sort of some of the people I I know. I am friends with a, um, you know, a, a, a marathoner uh, who competes in a uh, you know with a with a wheelchair and uh, you know um, just have a number of people in my life that I just think are super admirable, but they're not particularly famous so <laughs> yeah and they absolutely uh don't need to be i love that as a as a context right there's probably certain traits about that person or those people that you do admire 
And uh, last question, you can certainly answer this in a longer than uh, one word answer, but uh, as a kind of a get to know you, what's the story of your name, right? Are you named after someone? Does it name, does it mean something? Is it just kind of random? Do you have a, a story behind uh, Charlie O'Donnell? Uh, yeah, actually, it was my dad's name and my grandfather's name, um, which my middle initial and uh, is E. And so people, you know, sort of find me on Twitter and various other social things at CEO NYC, and they always think it has something to do with with business, but it's mm -hmm. actually just my initials. Um, the funny thing, though, is that I'm not a junior. We both have and I'm the third son. So it was mm. sort of like, there's a big age gap between us too. So it was sort of like my dad had like conceded the fact that he wasn't going to get a kid named after him. And then like 16 years later, <laughs> you know, uh, finally, finally got one. So I'm the uh, third Charles, but none of us are firsts or seconds or thirds. Yeah, not first or second. Yeah. Okay. I, I was I was wondering about that. Yeah, because your social media is CEO NYC for a lot of things. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is really, I mean, it kind of makes sense for someone that's in uh, uh, the VC world a little bit, maybe to have that. So I just thought it was a brand thing, but I love that it's, you know, the initials there as well. And I'm curious, how do you like being, like, is it confusing with family to be, are you all Charlie? Do some of them go by Charles or Chuck or things like that? Is How does, how does that work in terms of the, the family naming structure? Definitely no Chuck. Um, and I was sort of ambivalent as to whether it was like Charles or Charlie until uh, my first job out of school, I worked for a Charles who was very strictly Charles. And mm -hmm. so that meant that I was Charlie. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it just sort of rolls off the tongue a little better um, between first and, and last name. So although my um, you, my mom and dad will uh, just shorten it to Charles sometimes. Um, when I was a little kid, it, sometimes it was Charles Charles, which I'm not so sure why that's easier. Yeah, yeah that seems um, but, more syllables. Yeah, that's not something I would necessarily recommend that founders uh, refer to me in a pitch. But um, <laughs> yeah, Charlie's fine. Yeah, so if you're listening to this and thinking later that you want to pitch, make sure you're really paying attention to the name. Don't just like casually like kind of hear that off of the glance and be like, oh, I'm totally going to call him Charles Charles. Like, nope. Um, yeah. uh, like uh, and uh, so as we start to, to transition into kind of some of the, the work that you do, you know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs and, and people who listen. I'm curious, what was the first way that you made money? Was it out of school and into a, a kind of more traditional job? Was it something earlier on? Do you remember that, that first way you got your first either paycheck or stipend or, you know, a chore money or whatever it was? The first deposit I ever made the bank account was in the second grade, and it was $111 of communion money. And so that was like, uh, I just remember, we used to get like the physical bank book, like you'd go mm -hmm. in and they'd sort of, you know, type in the book, like this is your statement and all of yeah. that sort of stuff. And for whatever reason, that $111 like really, um, you know, kind of sticks in my mind. Um, I, I did get sort of a small allowance as a kid, but my first job, um, my older brother actually helped get me a job in a mailroom on Wall Street for a, a brokerage firm that he was like a, you know, sort of a senior VP at. And so three days a week over the summer, uh, probably between sophomore, junior, junior, senior, yeah, sophomore and junior year, 
um, I worked in this mailroom and just, you know, stamping, stuffing, <laughs> delivering stuff. But it was cool because I got to, you know, hop on the subway down to Wall mm -hmm. Street, you know, uh, work with all these, you know, sort of professional people. And it, you know, it, it beat what all of my other like teenage friends were doing, just, you know, working in uh, like retail or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in food and, and, and all of that sort of stuff, which were like way, way more work, way harder for less pay. And uh, so I, I feel like I really, really lucked out in my, my first job. Yeah. And, and a lot of times tough hours in those, those regards. And so in the, the mail room, did you learn things that then kind of altered or changed what you wanted to do from seeing that where you're like, Oh, wall street was great. Or like, did you see it and be like, actually, I think I want to go in a different direction. Does that influence kind of what you did later in any way, in any way? Um, no, I won't say that it did, but I, I did my second job after that. I got an internship. My high school actually had this phenomenal program. Um, I went to uh, to Regis High School, which is a, a private high school in uh, up, uptown in, in here in New York. Mm -hmm. And they had this internship program where they basically kicked you out in your third semester of senior year because you'd already like applied to your colleges and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And mm -hmm. so some people did community service project or or something like that. But I wound up working sort of four days a week full time. And then the fifth day was like an internship seminar day mm -hmm. at the General Motors Pension Fund, which was located mm -hmm. on 59th and 5th in the General Motors building, otherwise known as the building behind the Apple store um, yep. on the corner <laughs> of the park. And it was amazing. I mean, it, it was, um, you know, so this is like 1997. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things they asked me was whether or not I learned how to use Excel. And mm -hmm. I had had a computer in the house for about 10 years. My dad came home with a computer when I was like eight. And so I was like familiar with spreadsheets and was doing most of my school homework assignments on the computer and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And my other sort of internship buddy, this other kid that I went to school with, like he didn't have a computer in the house at the time, which is like crazy mm -hmm. to imagine now. And so he got all the like photocopying and filing work. And I got these like really interesting modeling spreadsheets, like whatever somebody was sort of willing to teach me how to do that they didn't want to do anymore. Mm -hmm. And the General Motors Pension Fund's a pretty sophisticated asset manager. I mean, they're managing like over $200 billion in assets across a whole bunch of different oh, wow. asset classes. And it, it really gave me sort of a bird's eye view of like, what does a trading room look like? Like, what mm -hmm. do people who pick stocks do, uh, private equity and real estate and all this sort of stuff? So I actually wound up staying eight years. I <laughs> I interned all that throughout inter college. Not as an intern that entire time, I imagine. No, four years as an intern. And then they hired me full-time in the private equity and venture capital group. So like the two sort of amazing things is that like one, I actually retired from GM when I left technically because I had four years of full-time service mm -hmm. and then they added up all my internship days. So oh, technically I vested into the General Motors pension fund, which is no longer a thing. You just get a 401k. But when I left, they said, well, what would you like to do with your retirement money? And here I am, I'm like 25. And I was like, I, I don't understand. Said, well, you have a choice. You could either get, $11 a month for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. 
$62 a month starting at age 65 uh -huh. or $7,000 now. Yeah. And as a 25 year old, I was like, thanks. I think I'll take the $7,000. Yeah. It was just like, you know, this totally unexpected check. And that's what they had to, from an actuarial standpoint, like pay you out mm -hmm. um, to, to, to buy you out of the, the pension fund. So um, yeah, it was, um, it was a great, it was a fantastic internship. I bounced around to a bunch of different groups and it, it gave me a really fantastic sense of like all of the different areas of finance. And what I really learned was that like, I am not one for a really fast paced environment. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really, I liked the people who worked in the trading room, but I didn't like making split second decisions. I liked sort of long-term thinking and being able to be very, um, you know, academic about things, manage stuff on a portfolio level. And it, and it really affected me too, because I'm, I'm more of a portfolio thinker than I am a deal person, which I think is a little mm -hmm. different than a lot of people in venture. Like I like to think about if I made this similar profile risk bet 30 mm -hmm. times, how would my early stage portfolio look versus yeah. like, is this the one? And is this founder the one? Which is, I think, more the narrative in early stage. Yeah. Which I, well, and I think it, it's it's refreshing to hear a little bit because I think for whatever reason, maybe because of media or maybe because of uh, you know survivorship bias or whatever, a lot of times like it's like no, you got to be the one that like wants to be in the fast paced environment and it's like almost shoot from the hip type thing or whatever. So in some ways, it's it's refreshing to hear that of like no, there's there's still a role and a way that you can play this skill set if that's what you prefer this longer term picture and bigger picture kind of thinking i do want to get to kind of this this idea around vc but i'm curious before jumping into that why why that direction in terms of vc as opposed to because i know you have some experience as a founder you've had some experience in big companies like a place like gm and and things like that what was it about being someone who's who's helping these startups do things as opposed to being you know that ceo yourself etc i mean so in some ways you are as for brooklyn bridge ventures but versus kind of taking a product or service and building it out what was it about vc that drew you in yeah sure um i can't take credit for picking private markets that is just happens to be the thing when like when i graduated and i was going around GM and all the different asset classes just to see who had an opening, mm -hmm. that's who happened to have the opening. It is like, I can't say there's any more thought that went into it in terms of, uh, you know, different asset classes. So mm -hmm. that basically put me in the group that did both uh, venture capital investments, which was obviously like mostly tech and biotech, um, buyouts, so larger companies taking private sort of, you know, barbarians at the gate type stuff. That actually gave me, I think, a really good insight into what um, mature businesses and lots of different markets act like. So, for example, team that did the leverage buyout of AMF, the bowling company. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I know more about the economics of bowling than most VCs. So, you know, I would just, we would always be in like sort of random markets like that, like companies mm -hmm. that made ice, 
like you never really think about that, but like there's a company that like makes ice and and uh, you know it was part of like some leverage buyout somewhere. So that gave me a good perspective on the market uh, overall in the private markets. Choosing between um, LBOs and and Mesdad and distressed and venture. I, I think it was a combination of two things. Um, one, a little bit timing, right? So I, mm -hmm. I went to college in the late 90s. And so, you know, if you were at all interested in investing or technically inclined, you know, like I, I had a little brokerage account when I was mm -hmm. in college, you know, took what that compounded communion money basically mm -hmm. and threw it into, you know, AOL and Yahoo and all this mm -hmm. sort of stuff, right? Which at first made me think I was very smart. And then I realized mm -hmm. I wasn't very smart same thing that everybody else felt like during that period of time. And so I was like inclined to be interested in tech and tech investing. Mm -hmm. And I think the personalities of the managers really resonated with me. I mean, two mm -hmm. people that really stuck out were um, Brad Feld and Roger McNamee. Mm -hmm. um, GM had been invested in, in Brad's fund for for a long time. Um, and so I probably first met Brad in like 2003, which is probably right around the same time I first in, encountered Roger. And they've just been tech investors forever. Mm -hmm. And they just were really cool people. They were just super enthusiastic. I mean, Roger would show up with like eight devices like clipped to his his belt, like some kind of like Batman utility belt of like the latest phone or Palm Pilot or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, people were kind of using at the time. And, and they were enthusiastic and fascinated by cutting edge technology. And it was, it was kind of infectious, to be honest, compared to, you know, truth be told, the buyout guys would come in yeah. and be like, here's a company we never in an industry we don't really care about, here's this like frozen vegetable company. And we think if we bought it at this valuation, levered it up, we'd be able to like take money out of it. And those guys were just like really enthusiastic about making money. Yeah. And, you know, no disrespect, but I just wasn't, that wasn't my calling. Now, in hindsight, a lot of those were very interesting people and very nice people. Some of them not as nice. I wish I would have stayed in touch with some of those buyout guys a little more because they would have made great limited partners for my funds. And so, you know, I didn't really network them because I didn't want to mm -hmm. do what they were doing, but um, yeah. some of them own professional sports franchises now. So they would, they would have been good networking partners. So. Yeah. Well, I it, uh, and it, uh, but I think from that, I, I think, two things that stand out to me kind of listening to that is, is one, yeah, sometimes it's just kind of circumstance in terms of, you know, what major you end up picking or what job you get out of school is the, you know, the one that this happens to be where the opening was or whatever, but also just how, how valuable finding cool people or people that you resonate with can have an impact on your career because you're like, well, these are interesting people. I want to learn from them. And I don't think that's necessary. I don't think it's like a, a bad thing. I think it's a thing for, people to keep in mind. And as you go through, as you get older, you can start to be more intentional about like, okay, based on these past experience, now I can say, this is what I really want to do. But especially for the people who are listening, who are still in school or recently graduated, sometimes the starting point isn't like, oh, knowing what that 50 year future looks like, but instead being like, what are the opportunities right now in front of me that are exciting? And then knowing that those may evolve into something else completely. Uh, in the future of kind of what you're you're sharing there. And so 
as you, right, so you, you go through some of these experiences and then what was the kind of desire for starting uh, a, a VC firm or the Brooklyn Bridge Venture specifically in Brooklyn? Yeah, so I got to work for two really fantastic firms. Um, so I was the first analyst at Union Square and uh, I was the first um, uh, principal hire in uh, full-time in New York for first round capital. And two really phenomenal organizations. Um, and the really difficult thing about venture is that the goal is to become a partner somewhere, both for economic reasons and for autonomy reasons, to be able to bleed deals. Partner positions don't grow on trees, right? It, at, at Union Square Ventures, I, I joined when I was like sort of 25. The two partners had vastly many more years of experience than I did. And so like partner was not the logical next step for me to, to be there. And then at First Round Capital, they had four partners. It was like a $130 million fund. It wasn't like an NEA where they're managing $3 billion and they have 24 partners and it's continuously growing and it's more like an asset manager. And so mm -hmm. there's just no room at the end. And so you, you get what experience you have, but you just have to find the opening and the fit. And a lot of those folks like Brad and Fred and like Josh and, and Howard, the answer is in creating your own firm. Mm -hmm. um, now today that is, seems like everybody has their own firm today and, and the market has totally exploded. But, um, you know, it was, a, it was a little less of a thing at the time mm -hmm. when I started the bridge. I think for me, um, you know, I it was sort of the same me at Brooklyn Bridge Ventures that I was at first round. I mean, maybe possibly a little earlier stage when I could sort of take less risk, not have to get three votes to do a deal and, and yeah. live and die by my own sword. But, you know, I had this, you know, way of going about the market of being like out and about and being somebody that like people knew and tried to be accessible. And, and, and so all of that kind of went into what I wanted the firm to be. In terms of the branding and the location, um, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn. I, I've, you know, um, lived my entire life within the five boroughs of New York City, including for college. Mm -hmm. it, it just struck me as a natural, you know, um, uh, brand affiliation for me and, and the Brooklyn Bridge between um, you know, spending so much time in Brooklyn Bridge Park and, 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 you know, I've kayaked under that bridge so many times. I've biked over it. I've driven over it. I've run over it. Um, and so that part was really a natural. The location thing for me was like part convenience because I lived in Brooklyn. It just seemed natural that like, if you're going to start your own firm, why add on extra convenience to make on a commute? But really, um, if you look at where the entrepreneurial population in New York City lives, mm -hmm. um, just by population number, there are more founders who live in Brooklyn than live in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not, I mean, partly it's like Brooklyn's a creative place and all this other stuff, mm -hmm. but like Brooklyn is almost twice the size population wise mm -hmm. as Manhattan, right? So if nothing else, there are just more people living in Brooklyn. And in fact, like, 
when when Brooklyn and Manhattan, which was sort of New York City proper before they merged, um, was first sort of competing neck and neck as different cities. Mm-hmm. Everybody thought that Brooklyn was going to be the larger city mm-hmm. because the idea of building up was like not a thing at the time. Yeah. And so it just made more sense that like, oh, Brooklyn is bigger by land mass. So clearly mm-hmm. it will be the larger city. And actually it turned out right. Like there are more people who live in Brooklyn than live in Manhattan. So that's sort of where it um, kind of came from. Well, uh, it's like, you know, there's a lot of companies over here. Yeah. When I love the I love the balance of those two things. I think in, you know, one we have entrepreneurs that might be at that that stage of thinking about naming or thinking about focus or things like that. And I think when you can tell the the story a little bit about it, there's there's a balance of the convenience, right, in terms of why, but then also there's the logic of additional people. But then it is also a story you can connect to of like, yes, this is a bridge that I've seen my entire life that you've said that you know that you've either kayaked under, biked over, whatever the the story, I think, a lot of times is what can make something even a little bit more meaningful rather than picking, you know, just ABC ventures or whatever. There's there's this connection and and it becomes more authentically you uh, as part of this. And, you know, one of the things I know you, you've talked about, you even mentioned it there, is that you, you want to be more accessible um, to people. And part of that is, especially for all the people in Brooklyn, rather than being in like, no, I'm going to be in this high rise in Manhattan that you got to come in and see me and like all that kind of stuff. Why, why is being accessible either important to you or a strategy for you? Is it one or the other, but why is that something that you've, you've made the choice to do? Yeah. I think when I think about the sort of next sort of 50 most important companies to be built in New York, my bet, and I, I think it'd be sort of hard to argue against, is that most of the founders of those companies are just not on people's radars today, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, yes, sure, some of those people will be uh, the current founders, right? Like, will the founders go off and, uh, you know, build another company? Like, sure. And, you know, they won't have to raise a seed round the next time because they made more than enough money launching their company. And... But the the reality of most of those uh, companies is that it's probably an iPhone developer at, you know, companies that uh, is thinking about the next big thing, right? It's mm-hmm. probably that the head of marketing for some, you know, for Shutterstock or whatever, and, and not even marketing, it might be a junior marketing person who experiences a problem, maybe either personally or professionally that has an idea. That person's not on the board. They probably don't know the VCs at that company. Mm-hmm. Um, they might not even know the founder on a first name basis in some of these companies that have become very big, right? And so where do they go and, and how do they connect? And the reality is that, you know, maybe they're not, you know, MIT entrepreneurial network, or, you know, um, they didn't go to Harvard or what have you. And where do they go to get early feedback? Um, what's sort of standing in their way? And I've always just felt like the, the, the warm intro, the, you know, only contact me if, you know, we know somebody in common and all that sort of stuff. It's just sort of a, it's an unnecessary filter that frankly, like doesn't add value. You know, it's kind of funny, actually, somebody cold emailed a founder that I backed to try and convince that founder 
to introduce them to me. I was like, that's just, just email me. Yeah. And you know, my email is on the site. Yeah. It's Charlie at BrooklynBridge.vc, right? Like, why go through that? Why cold email when... this person to get to you or what? Like, right. If you successfully gotten coffee with somebody that I know, what makes that a good filter for, you know, uh, venture capital, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's like, the the founders that I backed are not VCs. Mm -hmm. So like, why do I trust their filter? I mean, they might be good at hiring, they might know their space and I'm happy to, I'm thrilled when people I back send me uh, introductions, but it's, it's not a filtering mechanism by any stretch of the imagination. So um, I, I would just as soon rather get uh, stuff direct. And what I realized too is like, everyone's network kind of looks like themselves, mm -hmm. right? So like I know, more straight, bald, white guys with beards than, you know, some other uh, VC. And I don't necessarily want my deal flow to look mm. like that, right? And if you're, you know, uh, uh, a founder who comes out of, you know, the HBCU network or something like that, um, we might not know that many people in common, right? And, and, and so why should that be a barrier to you uh, pitching? Yeah, well, and I, and I love that kind of approach. It, 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 it expands kind of what you're looking for and like giving some of those opportunities maybe to, like you said, some of the people who aren't necessarily in those programs that have more of that visibility by default, either because they're at a big Ivy League school or because they were, you know, they already had success at, at another place. So I love that approach. So then what do you look for because you you know you've been a part of some great deals both with brooklyn bridge ventures uh you know early investments in places like the wing canary hungry root ample hills clubhouse mm -hmm. imagine going on and on you also people have talked about your role that you have played in early investments for places like twitter and foursquare and moat and group me right so one i guess quick question is there a brand that just sticks out that you just absolutely love or is that like picking your favorite child because the reason why I say that is like Ample Hill is some of the best ice cream on the planet. So I think that's amazing um, that you've done there. But like, is there anything that sticks out to like, oh, I've always really appreciated either the, this brand or the way that people have um, used it or like created it or the people that you worked with there? Yeah, so I'm I'm not gonna pay, pick my favorite kid because okay. um, okay. that, that'll create a lot of friction uh, sort of internally. Um, but I'll tell you, you know, I, I actually was just sitting down with um, one of my founders this week and they went through this branding exercise that they had done internally. And what really struck me um, is a company called CareSwitch and they are in the um, uh, home care space, just helping uh, agencies that help with like home health aides just sort of manage their their staff and, and all of that sort of stuff. So you wouldn't necessarily think of like that in the sort of great brand, you know, in the sort of DTC or, or whatever. But they were walking through an exercise that they had done, which was such a thoughtful review of their brand and messaging. And they, it was such a process. And I think a lot of times people think of brand as like, um, Des, just design, right? Mm -hmm. Like I made our website look good. And what struck me about their process was they looked out in the market and they said, um, what voice do we want to have? How do we want to speak to our customers, right? What is everybody else in the market 
say about their value proper, proposition? What do we want to say? And how is it different? Like it was just such a methodical process mm-hmm. um, that I think I, I even went as far as like I, I asked the founder if I could just record the work that they had done and I sent it to some of my internal portfolio companies because I really think that brand, the best brands are a result of a thoughtful process. Now, sometimes founders develop them with a thoughtful process in their own head and they don't really realize that they, um, they've they gone through a process, but I think it's really important for your team mm-hmm. so that everybody can be on the same page and say, okay, like this is how we want to talk to our customers. This is how we want to talk to the market. So it empowers that junior PR person to answer a reporter question because everybody knows how we talk about ourselves. Everybody knows the relationship we want to have with our customers. And so I, I appreciate anybody that uh, appreciate anybody that goes through a, a strong collaborative process to get everybody on the same page about their brand. Yeah, which I think makes a lot of sense, right? It is more than, uh, like you said, just the logos that you choose or the typeface or the you know the font colors and things like that. When, from our side, that's why we encourage is encourage brands to have a humor style guide in addition to their brand style guide. Like as part of it is like, what's the, like you're saying the voice of it so that everyone kind of is on the same page of what is our sense of humor? What is our style for answering these questions? What is our bigger picture goal? And that certainly comes from all, you know, spent time at Procter and Gamble where brand management is much bigger than just, you know, the brand assets that are created. So, so thoughtfulness seems to be kind of one of those criteria. What else are you looking for? What, you know, do you have a a rubric that you go through in terms of looking at companies? Is it more of a gut feel? Is it like, got to really like the founders? It has got to be like super profitable and can expect to turn around. Like what, from your perspective, what, what's the criteria you look at? I, I really appreciate that you stuck to that question, despite my meandering first part of that answer, and you didn't let me get away with uh, avoiding it. It's, uh, I feel like there's a journalism background in there somewhere. Um, no, it, it, I, I think the process that I go through is more about elimination than it is selection. Mm-hmm. The reality is um, there's about 2,000 deals that show up in my inbox um, you know, it, 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 over the course of the year. Mm-hmm. I think about 150-ish first-time pitch meetings. I do like real work on about 30 and, and narrow down to like eight to 10 deals that I actually wind up doing. Mm-hmm. And so most of what I'm doing is not saying yes, it's, it's actually saying no. And so um, I think the biggest questions that is most relevant for a founder is like, why do I say no? Mm-hmm. And then what I, I don't think my portfolio really likes to think of itself as like leftovers, yeah. but <laughs> what they are survivors, in, some, in a sense. Yeah, they've survived, exactly. They've survived the process. And the things that eliminate companies are like, I mean, market size is a big one. I mean, if you just, if you can't get big enough, there just aren't enough customers. If you can't make enough money from those customers, I mean, that's, that's just sort of an easy one. And there are a lot of really great projects whose terminal value is like five to $30 million, right? And then they should be, 
you know, appropriately financed, maybe just with a handful of angels. They should be tucking acquisitions to some larger things. They just don't have a very large scope to them. And, and those could be fantastic outcomes for founders. I mean, I have, I have investors of mine who have bootstrapped and sold two companies, mm-hmm. um, one for like $8 million and the other were like for 30. And now they're investing in venture capital firms. So like you can make a lot of money bootstrapping companies to, you know, quote unquote, small exits. Mm-hmm. Um, you own a hundred percent of them. I think um, fa- founder market fit or founder problem fit is a, is a big one. Like, are you, do you possess the right skill set mm. for this particular problem? Um, I, I just um, I just passed on a company yesterday who who pitched me. I thought the founder was knowledgeable about the problem, mm-hmm. but I thought the problem really required a lot of insight into messaging and marketing mm-hmm. and to, to stand out. Where the challenge was like standing out and finding your customer. And that DNA just like wasn't on the team. Yeah. Like it was just someone who, you know, was just sort of a category expert, but not a marketer, not a UX or design or brand uh, kind of person, not somebody who's going to do the execution. Yeah. And I was like, pre-product, like I just, there's no one I can sort of bet on here to meet the challenge of your, mm-hmm. what you're doing. Um, you know, the, the, the counter of that is um, when I was at first round capital, I backed a company called Single Platform, and it was started by the former VP of sales of Seamler. Mm-hmm. And so in the the local marketing space, the challenge is, you know, how do you call up a pizzeria and get them to buy tech, right? right? And that, that's a very different sales process than calling up the CIO of Morgan Stanley to go buy tech. Mm-hmm. Well, who knows how to do that and run that sales team, but the former 10-year VP of sales at Seamless, yeah. right? They have that company, Yaxed and Yelp and, and all of that sort of stuff, right? So I would back him to do that kind of company, whereas I wouldn't back him to do an educational kids app. Yeah. I mean, you know, so you got to sort of match the thing. Yeah. And then I think, think the thing is- Well, so just real sure. quickly on those two things, I think that there's great insight in both of them. So one, you know, kind of mark gaps uh, fit, et cetera. And even to your point though, is to say that that doesn't mean that it's not a good idea or viable. It just might be one, you're not the right VC for them. And, or maybe the traditional VC, right. Might not route, might not be the the right fit. So I love that in terms of being an, an entrepreneur and thinking like, okay, is is this type of the, the type of backing that I actually need based on, on what I'm doing? So uh, I think great insight there. And then this this fit piece, I think is really interesting too, because a lot of times I think the stereotype is like, yeah, you got to really believe in the team and it's just got to be a really good team. But I haven't necessarily heard this articulation of like, it's got to be a good team for that problem, right? That like there's certain things where it is like, okay, I would take this founder in this scenario because of this, but could be the exact same founder, but in this scenario might not because of that that fit. So I love those two distinctions just to kind of clarify that. And so then the, this third piece you're starting to speak on. Yeah, the third piece I think is just reasonability of the plan. Mm-hmm. So just to be able to say, um, and this is something that this could be a flexible conversation sort of in the meeting. Mm-hmm. Somebody might come in and say, and in fact, I'm literally just closing on a deal now where the founder originally came in and says, I think I need 500 K mm-hmm. 
And the reality is just 500K like didn't really get them anywhere. Like it didn't get them to like a, a significantly different kind of company and a different, you know, sort of level of progress. It was sort of a B2B company and 500K, you know, probably like bought them some engineers and bought them some product expansion, but didn't really establish a sort of real sales and marketing effort. Mm -hmm. And so like, I was kind of an engineering focused founder. I was pretty certain that they could build this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I didn't understand like why raise 500 to build things that I already believe you could build. If you had the money, mm -hmm. the real question on your team is, can you sell this? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm willing to take that risk. But like that risk is still going to exist at the end of your 500 K and you're going to be just sort of in the same spot you are now. Um, being an engineering focused team with some product and like not a lot of sales marketing traction. Mm -hmm. So I pushed them to, um, to raise a million and a half, which we are just wrapping up now. And the, by the time they, they reach the end of this million and a half, you know, we'll be a company that's doing, you know, sort of 200 K a month in, in, in revenue. And that's a definitively different story than where they are now. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, so three great kind of criteria for people to to think about, which I think gives a lot of insight um, for for people. Um, and and so as we start to to wrap up, uh, one of the things I do want to just quickly talk about is uh, you know so you have a great blog. This is going to be big. Uh, you've got a newsletter that you send out. You've spoken at places like South by Southwest and TechCrunch Disrupt, etc. What's the like? What's the intent? Like, do you just like speaking? What's the like? Is it a business strategy to get out there and vocalize? Because I feel like some people could be like, ah, I'm just going to focus on the work. Why do you spend that additional time to, to educate and to share messaging and insight to a broader group that's not just, hey, the people that you've brought into the fold under the VC? Yeah, so I'm a generalist investor, mm -hmm. right? So I am not going to go you know, sort of neck deep in a particular area and go house to house and sort of figure out like, who are all of the people that I need to know in the information security area? Mm -hmm. Who are all the people who can refer me to the next big founder in this space? And, and you know, for some people that works for them and they mm -hmm. get to know all the trends and they sort of know what they're looking for before it shows up at their door and that's how they find stuff. As a generalist investor, um, you know, and, and at the stage that I'm doing, mm -hmm. right? the companies that I'm investing in, they're not on Crunchbase. They're not on PitchBook. They're not findable, right? There's mm -hmm. somebody who's going to watch this who hasn't quit their job yet, mm -hmm. who just has a little side project going. There's 20 users on it. That is a completely unfindable company. Mm -hmm. So I need my story mm -hmm. to find them and uh, to be findable so that when they go poking around the market and they're like, hey, who does like kind of ridiculously early stuff in New York and is willing to take a, a lead position and put down a term sheet mm -hmm. that you don't have to throw too many rocks before you run into me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then there's a conversion thing, right? So you, you listen to this podcast and you think like, 
oh, maybe I could work with that guy or mm -hmm. oh, maybe that guy's a jerk. Maybe I don't want to pitch him or whatever. And so it, it sort of helps the conversion, I think, as well. So you kind of know what you're getting when you show up at a meeting with me. Yeah, which I think is, is fantastic because I think, you know, within within sales, there is also kind of that idea of people oftentimes buy from the first person to provide them value. So the fact that you are giving and you're giving insight, if people resonate with the way that you share that message, then they're like, oh, well, maybe I want to learn a little bit more. I like the way that this person approaches this idea or here, hey, I, I have the clear criteria of some of the things that they're looking at. And so I might have a good conversation with them. So um, and at the same time, you get to do that while also uh, serving a bunch of people. So, uh, you know, as we uh, as I mentioned, as we start to wrap up, one of the questions that we like to ask each of our guests is about their morning routines, because some people are super into like have a, a very click clear thing that they do every single day. Some people just kind of wake up. So I'm curious in 60 seconds or less, what's your morning routine look like? Uh, my morning routine lately has started out with um, hanging upside down for a couple minutes. Um, I just, I just got these little clips that attach to a pull-up bar and um, you know, I'm in my forties now and my back isn't what it used to be. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that has been a game changer. Um, I do try and exercise in the morning. Either I'll uh, I'll ride my bike, or I do this uh, workout called Con Body, which is invented by a somebody who's formerly incarcerated. Mm -hmm. So it's a workout you could essentially do in a small space. Um, doesn't require any weights or anything like that. Um, I try to eat. I'm a three square meals mm -hmm. a day kind of person. I don't know how these sort of intermittent fasting people go hours and hours. I would become very irritable if I didn't mm -hmm. eat on a regular basis. Um, and then my wife and I have sort of started taking to, you know, at least during the pandemic when we're not going anywhere, um, early morning walks just mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, get out there and start the day and talk. And, and I think that's important too. Like when you're in a couple, when you're living with somebody, it's very easy to let the work sort of take up your whole day and not check in with each other. And um, I think that's that's really important too. Yeah, and I, yeah, you are certainly the first person that we've chatted with that started their day by hanging upside down. So uh, <laughs> I love it out there for people to try. And it, it's, yeah, it's funny that you also bring up, um, so you bring up your wife because one of the, the segments that we also have on uh, the show sometimes that we talk about is explain someone who you are following on social media. So I took a look at some of your social media and both on Twitter and Instagram, you give shout outs to what you say is your better half uh, of uh, of your wife. Asia. So yeah, AJ Singer, uh, who has a fantastic newsletter. And I'm curious, first of all, do you all follow each other on social media? Do you have to like make sure that you like and like comment on each other's posts? because you see you're sitting right next to this incredible person as well, but do you actually engage through social media as well? Cause I'm, I'm having, I'm wondering that same question for me and my wife. Yeah. So uh, we don't sit next to each other all day. She's in the other room. I'm in the bedroom. So we kind of have this like two office set up. Mm -hmm. um, one of us has Twitter notifications set up on the other one's tweets. Mm -hmm. And so um, it is, it is, not her. Like I see when she tweets all the time and I make sure that I engage. Mm -hmm. She all this VC stuff. Like, she can no, kind of not as much interested. Yeah. yeah, not as much into it. Um, but, you know, I do try and engage. Actually, a lot of this sort of social media stuff is relatively new for mm -hmm. her. She uh, spent years as a creative director, mostly in, in fashion and, and was trying to um, broaden her purview. And so being someone who's been, you know, 
blogging for 17 years and newslettering for 10 and, and all of that sort of stuff, I was sort of, you know, poking on that a, mm -hmm. a little bit, getting her to put herself out there because she's incredibly creative and super thoughtful. And her first response was that I, you know, I don't like to write, I'm not mm -hmm. a good writer and all of this sort of stuff, but it, none of this stuff is natural. I mean, it really is a function of practice and just like doing it and, mm -hmm. and, you know, so, um, and, and now she's just like, you know, I, I, founders are pitching me and I noticed they're following her, not me. Um, you know, she's getting all sorts of inbound opportunities from her newsletter and really, really developing a whole, you know, sort of persona on, on her own. And so, um, and, and her newsletter is really good. And it, it you know, I, I, I read it and I think she's, I, I think what she's realized too is like, it helps with thinking, right? Writing mm -hmm. is thinking way. You know, it, uh, when she first started, she's like, what am I going to write about? And now that she's writing on a regular basis, she's already two newsletters ahead in terms of generating new ideas. So I think it's, it's not just work. It's sort of, it's more like mind exercise to kind of have these conversations and put the stuff out there. Yeah. I totally agree with that of like writing, especially as a, as an engineer and as an introvert who like, you know, I think of emotions as data, um, right? Which I, I think is, is some ways good, but like by writing, it helps me to actually fully process some of these, these thoughts. So I, I love that. And so I'm curious from this perspective, because I think some, some entrepreneurs, some founders, some people listening may find themselves in this situation of how do the two of you balance both being in then these types of endeavors as kind of entrepreneurs yourselves or building in both being, you know, creative, especially in a pandemic working from home, do you have it sounds like you're in different rooms, like, but how do you balance that versus like, oh, the traditional kind of model of maybe someone's going into work and has those set hours versus the more entrepreneurial person where they might be working at who knows what hour? Yeah, so um, I, I, I think communication is really important. I think um, uh, schedule management, just even more so than just for professional reasons, for personal reasons, mm -hmm. it is a huge thing. I mean, we you know, I, I got married at 39. And so I was, you know, both of us were sort of relatively independent people and used to managing our own schedules. And one of the things we realized is that like, I'm a planner, particularly around like, I do a lot of races and triathlons and stuff like that. And so, you know, as I think about my triathlon schedule, I'm signing up six, nine months in advance yeah. and being like, oh, okay. Like I know that next year I will be doing this race, this place, right? she likes to kind of stroll into an open weekend and sort of figure out what's around, what's available and all that sort of stuff. And when you put those two schedules together, what winds up happening is my stuff's already on the calendar. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of were defaulting into having to do what I had planned because I was a planner mm -hmm. and it's not the kind of balance that we're necessarily looking for. So, you know, I think we sort of meet each other in the middle, right? Where, you know, she's, agreed to plan some things out ahead of time if I sort of find something for us to do. And I agreed to plan not to plan, basically. <laughs> sort of leave these blank spots in the schedule and be like, we're going to do something on Saturday and we'll figure out what, um, which is not very natural for me to do. Um, and I think on a day-to-day -day basis, we've encountered the same thing. Like we tried to make it a point of 
coming together for for lunch mm -hmm. uh, part of that is, is because i do the cooking so if we didn't come together for lunch she wouldn't eat yeah. uh so uh she needs me for that at least i'm good for something mm -hmm. um but meals are meals are important times for us to sort of come together so we're trying to um you know stay on that that kind of schedule yeah, no, that's that's very helpful and, and very selfishly just help give me some good insight between me and my wife because she is also very much a planner, also a runner. Maybe there's something about people doing marathons and things where they know that, hey, if I commit to this in six months, it actually also means that I'm running now every weekend or whatever, prepping to it or, or something. So a lot of great insight there uh, with what my wife calls calendar science of time management, but the science of, of putting our calendars together. But uh, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us today. I love this balance of perspective, not only talking about from the VC perspective, but also the, the life stuff and the, the managing of relationships, which I uh, really appreciate. If people are interested, if they heard this and are like, May, maybe I am that iPhone developer at this company, but I've got this idea or whatever, I've started to build it out. Uh, and they wanted to reach out or get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that or to follow you or to, to, to you know, read the blog, et cetera? What's the, what's the best way to connect? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm, I'm basically funding New York City area companies. So that's important. Mm -hmm. And I still yep. believe, you know, kind of location is important. Um, I have this little calendar request tool on the brooklynbridge.vc site. There's also a link to it on my blog. This is going to be big. Um, you know, you Google around, I'm sort of findable across a number of, of platforms. But I would say, um, you know, follow me on Twitter, sign up for the newsletter, but more so than just for me to build up followers, just to like see who you're getting when mm -hmm. you wind up pitching. Uh, it, some of the things I say may resonate, some may not. So I think it's it's helpful to understand like why you want to pitch me and, and that you actually do. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and, and don't hesitate to sort of reach out too early. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't take every meeting. I don't take most meetings, but I, I do try and get back to people. Um, and so sometimes I'm a little late in, in doing that. Uh, you can imagine my inbox given what I do for a living. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll always try and respond with, you know, some kind of feedback. And, and a lot of times it's, um, I think people feel like they're, they're helpful um, directional questions. We also do a ton of events at Brooklyn Bridge, mm -hmm. um, which you can find on our website too. Um, one of the events, for example, is this event called uh, Not a Pitch, which, you know, by the time January comes around, we'll have a whole full slate of them. And I don't even care if you came up with the idea that day. Um, you know, sort of jump into a big public group, you, you share like, you know, here's a minute about what I'm doing. And I give you like a minute back and sometimes just, um, it's good early directional feedback. Like, Hey, three people tried to do that two years ago and they all failed. You should just go check with these guys to see why they did. And maybe you never saw those companies because they never hit the light of day, but every VC in New York already saw them. And if you're pitching, that's a disadvantage, right? So, so that's yeah. the kind of feedback I'm trying to give um, early. Yeah, well, and actionable. So I, I love that. Also follow him in those places because he drops knowledge bombs just like he did throughout this entire podcast. So uh, on social media, you can find him at CEO NYC and of course uh, through Google. So Charlie, thank you so much for 
uh, joining us today. Uh, as a reminder, this has been another episode of the Ascent Podcast brought to you by the Ascent Conference, uh, which you can learn more about at uh, ascentconf.com, uh, and as well as myself and Humor That Works, uh, which you can find out more about at humorthatworks.com. Uh, we've got more great uh, interviews and conversations with some great humans in the tech scene uh, coming up. So uh, be sure to subscribe and rate on your favorite podcast apps. Uh, and with all that being said, you all have been great. I've been Andrew Tarvin. And until next time. Thanks.